and there's a kind of commitment to covenant again. Uh, they agree to repopulate the city. And this is kind of where we're up to now, because we're looking today at Nehemiah 12. So we've kind of, we've seen these three people, and then we've had this kind of interlude, and now we're in Nehemiah 12. And what's going to happen today is going to be a big celebration. Today's passage is all about celebrating and worshipping God and giving thanks for the walls that have been rebuilt. This is kind of epic, joyful, unifying moment in the history um, of Israel. And I think in many ways it's the culmination of the two books. So we're going to look at Nehemiah 12. We're going to look at it in sections. Um, so we're going to sort of make a point as we look at each bit uh, as we go. And I've called this talk uh, Lessons on Worship uh, because I want to draw out four lessons I think we can learn about worship. In many ways, I'm hoping this is going to encourage us because it's going to be stuff we already do and we know. But it may also um, help correct some of our thinking sometimes when it goes a bit, uh, I know we can see things in the wrong way. So the first lesson then is about faithful worship being regular and habitual. So we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 12, 1 to 26. If you've got a Bible, please get it out. Otherwise, the words will come up on the screen. Um, So verse 1 reads, These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sarariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, I'm going to stop there because it's another one (laughs) of those lists. Uh, List number four or five, I think we're now up to. Um, There's a list, basically, it says, these are the priests, and you look at verse eight, and the Levites, and then it gives another list. We go to verse uh, 12. In the days of Jehoiakim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, and again, we have a list of all the different priests and the Levites. And then finally, uh, in verse 22, in the days of Eliashib, again, a list. Um, and then maybe if I read verse 26 at the end of that section, these were in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, and the scribe. Okay? Uh, and then I'm going to jump ahead to the end of the passage in verse 44 to 47. We're going to read that bit in full. Um, so 44 to 47 reads, And on that day men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and of the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, they were directors for the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel And in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Okay, so as I said, um, this is another list. Not the last bit we read, we'll come to that at the end. But it's another list of names. Um, But we know, don't we, that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, says Paul in 2 Timothy. So I think there is an important point in this list uh, to draw out. It's a list, you see, of priests and Levites. That makes it different to any list we've seen so far. These are the men who are given the job of ministering in the temple. They would prepare sacrifices. They would receive offerings. um, They would do purification rites. Uh, They would keep the oil in the lamp burning. 
They had lots to attend to in the temple and to the people that, that came to them. This was all given in the law of Moses. And what the list in 1 to 26 tells us is who these priests and families were. From the time of Zerubbabel, that was in verse 1, to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, that was in verse 26. And actually, it's quite difficult, but if you're careful to read the list of names, it actually goes well beyond the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, probably another few generations, probably up until the time the book was written. So we have a record of the priests, certainly the chief priests, the kind of senior priests, the high priests, uh, and their families. Um, from the time Zerubbabel comes back from exile, through the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, to the time that the book was finally put together. So what we see is what a commitment by Israel to right and proper worship of God from generation to generation. It's faithful worship, isn't it? Because they've done this from generation to generation all the time that they've been back in the land. And I think it's interesting that this is made here, this point is made here, just before we're about to read this incredible celebration, this day of worship and dedication, like the big occasion. We're reminded, before we focus too much maybe on that amazing day, that proper worship of God is also continual and consistent, regular and habitual. The big occasions and the significant moments do matter. They're real, they're powerful, uh, they're significant in our lives and the lives of the church. We'll all have our own personal stories to tell, I'm sure. But we have to remember that it's so important, the repeated the dedicated worship that we do daily, that we do weekly, that we do monthly, that we do yearly. An analogy could be, say, in marriage, you could imagine, or any relationship really, um, people, you know, in that relationship, someone could make large demonstrations of love and of kind of romantic gestures. But if the rest of the time you didn't really speak to your wife or husband, you didn't listen to them, you didn't want to spend time with them, then it wouldn't really be described as a very healthy marriage. You could, though, I think, have a marriage the other way around, where maybe there weren't lots of those big gestures, but there was, you know, every day um, being listened to, tenderness, um, care for one another, and that certainly would be a healthy marriage. And I think it's the same in our worship. Our worship day to day, week to week, says many, much more, I think, than the big occasions or the big experiences, as precious to us as they may be. What we repeatedly do says something important about what we value, what we think is important. So our faithful attendance, you know, to come to church every week, we're showing that we value corporate worship. As long as that's why we're coming, I suppose. Um, but gathering as the family of God to worship God is something that matters to us and is a priority to us. I'm sure for the priests and the Levites, at times it would have felt like they were going through the motions. But they faithfully turned up and performed their service. So let's not be discouraged to be committed to be faithful worshippers. So if you are feeling dis disengaged maybe with God or distant, of course press in and seek God. But actually it's as we just come to worship faithfully week after week, month after month, we're honouring God. And that is the ultimate reason we're worshipping in the end anyway, to give praise and thanks to God who's called us out of darkness into his marvellous light, says First Peter. Um, just quickly on, on verse 47, which is the last little section I read, I'll just read verse 47 again, just uh, verse 47, if I can find it. Um, 
And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. We see as well, don't we, that the Israelites uh, gave the daily portions for those that were ministering in the temple. See, it's not just actually our attendance, our physical presence, our bodies, our voices. It's also our giving to the work of the church that's a part of our worship. So it's regular attendance and regular contribution to the work of the church is faithful worship to God. Right, that was the first lesson then. Worship is regular and habitual. Secondly, uh, worship must be made holy. Let's look at Nehemiah 12, starting at verse 27. It's on the screen behind me. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So here we have the kind of preparations being made now for this big dedication ceremony. The people are gathering from the surrounding villages and towns. But I want to focus particularly on verse 30. Let me read that again. Uh, verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. We sang, didn't we, that song, Purify My Heart, today. Um, we're reminded of two things as the preparation to dedicate the walls and give thanks to God. The first is the people are unclean and unworthy to worship God. And secondly, God has mercifully offered for them purification a means that they can be made pure and made holy. So firstly, then, the people are unclean and unworthy to worship God. We know this because obviously they wouldn't need to be purified otherwise, otherwise would they? Um, what needs purification? It's interesting to see. It's the priests, it's the Levites, it's the people, and it's the gates and the wall. They all need to be purified. Uh, those ministering, the priests and the Levites, those participating, the people, and the work that they've done, right? The gates and the walls that they've built, they're all somehow sort of stained by sin because they were made by sinful hands, I suppose. You know, God is holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. God is pure. He has no sin. He sits in awesome power. And how can the Israelites, who've rejected him, that's why they were shipped off in exile in the first place, They've disobeyed him. They haven't been faithful to him. God has sent prophets calling out to them. Repent, turn, they won't listen. How can they come and sing praise to God that's acceptable? How can we come and sing this morning when we have, even this morning, no doubt, even in this very service, not honored God fully in our thoughts or our words, our actions? I've been reading James recently. I've been struck by some of the things he says. Um, James in chapter 3, talking about the tongue 
so our words, says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. He goes on to say, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among us is chapter 4. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Our hearts um, are corrupt, aren't they? We're full of selfishness, tendencies to selfishness, tendencies towards um, speaking quickly, saying things, harsh words of others. And there are many other ways as well. But God has, in his mercy, provided for us purification from that, cleansing from our sin. For the Israelites, there were various means by which this could happen. Um, Often they were sprinkled with blood or with water. Uh, These are all given in the law of Moses. Um, And so we see that's what the priests and Levites did. They had to purify themselves. They had to purify the people. They purified the walls and the gates. Now, this is undeserved mercy. This is actually grace because they're performing this ritual by faith and they're made clean. I mean, it's not obvious, I don't think, that if you sprinkle somebody with blood... They're going to be made clean. Okay? Uh, now, we obviously don't go around sprinkling each other with blood or sprinkling ourselves with blood. Uh, but we know, don't we, from Hebrews, if you think back to the time we spent in Hebrews, it says, this is in Hebrews 10, Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. That's his death on the cross. And it goes on to say, and by that single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. As we trust Christ's sacrifice for our sins, by his death on the cross, we are made clean and our worship is acceptable to God. Not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done for us. Now, what does this mean for us in terms of our approach to worship? I think I'd want to start by saying, do you do so acknowledging your sins? I'm thankful that Ruth sort of started with a confession actually um, which is really nice Um, that's a really appropriate way to start worship is as we come before God we remember our sin we confess it to God we're cleansed reminded of our cleansing by the sacrifice Jesus has made so it's really good practice to confess our sins before we come to worship whether that's directed from the front sometimes it might be sometimes it might not you know to prepare our hearts to come before God to worship You have been made holy and pure if you are a Christian. No matter what's happened in the week, no matter how bad it's been, if you come with a repentant heart and trust in Christ, you are forgiven. That's God's gift of grace to us through his son. So let's not forget that as we come to worship. Okay, uh, that was lesson two then. Our worship uh, must be made holy. Lesson three, true worship is focused on God. So we're going to read our last section now of Nehemiah, which is Nehemiah 12, 31 to 43. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall, 
and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the Dungate, and after them went Hoshishiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshalem, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives. Shemaiah, Azarel, Bilalai, Gilalai, Maiai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them, I being Nehemiah, with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elioenai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoianan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Okay, so in this final section, we see that Nehemiah organizes a kind of great procession around the walls. Ezra goes one way around the walls, and Nehemiah uh, goes the other way. They each take with them some choirs, some singers, musicians, and priests. So there's singing, there's music being played. And they all then gather at the end at the house of God. That's the temple, that's in verse 40, which is the newly built temple. Sorry, I realized I didn't. Oh, I did click it on, did I? Thanks, did you click it on for me? Thanks. Um, so they all gather at the house of God, the temple. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, there are certain words and phrases that get repeated in this section, lots and lots. We have singers and singing, choirs, um, cymbals, harps, lyres, trumpets, musical instruments all get repeated. But as well, it's not just music, but it's also what they're singing about. In this chapter 12, we have the word thanks or thanksgivings appearing seven times in chapter 12. The words rejoice, joy, or gladness, which I kind of lumped together, appears seven times as well. So this is a passage, isn't it, about joyful, exuberant, musical worship, giving thanks to God for what he has done. So what's clear is the people are joyful, they're thankful, they're singing songs, they're expressing their praise to God. I guess the question is, what are they thankful for? What are they joyful about? Well, I think they're rejoicing that the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. They're rejoicing that the temple has been rebuilt. They're rejoicing that God has brought his people back to Israel despite their being scattered as exiles in Babylon. God has redeemed his people again. He's established his city again. God has been merciful to them. They were under judgment, remember, when they went into exile. Now they're under his grace again. And the source of all the good that they've received is God. That's actually clear in verse 43. If I go back, verse 43. 
um, which reads, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. It says in the middle there, For God had made them rejoice with great joy. God is the source of their joy. And God is the source of their thankfulness. You know, I think praise and thankfulness and joy, I wanted to say they're like two sides of a coin, but they're three things. So then I thought, I'd have to be a three-sided dice. And then I realized three-sided dice are quite difficult. You can't actually make it. Is there a mathematician in here? No, Dan's not in here, no. You can't make a three, anyway. Yeah, you, oh, mathematician, you can't make a three-sided dice. Well, you you can if you have a weird shape like this, but not a, yeah. yeah. Um, But the point is, thankfulness and joy and praise are really all different faces of the same thing. They're all expressions that come out of the same thing. When we're thankful to someone for something, we want to express some sort of gratitude, some praise to them, right? And that thing makes us joyful, it makes us happy. I remember last Christmas, uh, we had the girls' Christmas presents in their stockings on our bed, and they came in, and they were just so excited. They were big beaming smiles, jumping up and down, so excited. And uh, we were really excited too, because we thought we'd got some great presents for them. I remember Gabrielle, we'd got her a watch, which you thought she's going to love that. Do you mind when we'd got her a, a baby sling uh, for a dolly to go in? thought she's going to love that. And they, they jumped in. The first present they opened was a little pot which had some nuts and sultanas in it. And uh, they loved it, and they went, can we eat our nuts and sultanas? Can we eat our nuts and sultanas? And they basically weren't that interested <laughs> in, it was almost like a chore to get to open the other presents. And when they went downstairs to see their granny and palmy, they, they were like, we got nuts and sultanas. <laughs> uh, but children, children, we can learn from children, I think. They are so good at expressing joy and thankfulness and praise. And the Psalms are full, I think, of the same examples of this, where the command to praise and to rejoice is linked to the command to be thankful, to recount what God has done or to think of what God is doing or what God will do. So Psalm 147, which actually um, possibly was a psalm that is written about the events that we've just read. Um, See if you can spot why people think that as we read it. We're just going to read the first six verses. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Verse 2, by the way, if you're wondering why people think that one's about um, the events we've just read. Who knows, maybe they sang this psalm as they, as they went around the walls. Um, do you see how God-focused that psalm is? Those words are on the screen there. How it's recounting what God does and how that's the foundation of the praise that people are bringing. Right? The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He heals the brokenhearted. He determines the numbers of the stars. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. What does that mean for us? Well, I think it means that our worship, if it's to be genuine, truthful, full of joy, 
we have to be focused on God and who God is, his character, his salvation, the sending of Jesus Christ into the world for our sins, the holiness that we have in Christ, the love that he has for us, the hope we have of eternal life, all these things. They direct our hearts to be thankful to God for mercy that we don't deserve, for kindness we're not owed, for love that you know, we can't get our heads around. These things make us joyful. They make us thankful. As we think on these things, they fill our hearts with praise to recount the good things that God has done or is doing or will do. So I think, again, if, if, you're, if you're singing songs in church and you're feeling like you're lacking joy, then God can give it to you by fixing your mind on God, reminding yourself of who he is. And that's not to say if people are going through difficult things, obviously there is a place for grief, for lament, for, for struggling. Uh, the Psalms are full of that as well. But we are commanded, are we not, to give thanks in all circumstances. And I think no matter how dire the situation we're in, we can always give thanks, can't we, for the eternal salvation that we have in Christ, right? The hope we have overcomes anything that life could throw at us. So we always have a reason to be thankful for God. Makes us also think about the songs that we're singing. Are the songs that we're singing and the songs that we like, are they true about who God is and do they magnify God okay um, to close I want to finish with one final lesson which is worship is the end of everything and um, when I say end I don't mean like the finishing <laughs> I mean the purpose of everything right so worship is the purpose of everything we've had three lessons so far faithful worship is regular and habitual worship must be made holy true worship is focused on God um, hopefully that'll be all right. Um, okay. So the final lesson, the, this idea that worship is the end of everything, comes from actually the placement of this passage in the context of the whole of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, you see, at, in e Nehemiah 6, the walls get completed, they get built. And so um, you might think that the natural place for this passage to come in would be straight after it. It's interesting as well that it's all first-person narrative. Nehemiah's part is first-person. It's like he kept a log or a diary that he wrote. The verses, chapters 1 to 6, are all first-person. Then we go into like third-person, where it's, you know, Ezra did this, blah, blah, blah. And then it comes back, and actually the bit we just read is back in first-person again. So the, the person that's put this book together has deliberately put this bit right at the end. They haven't put it straight after the rebuilding of the walls. Um, so wh why is that? Um, well, I think it's because this is actually not just a dedication of the walls. It's a culmination of everything that God has done throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. Because if you think about it, okay, yes, they dedicate the walls, they walk along the walls. There's the rebuilt walls. But then where do they finish? At the temple, which was rebuilt um, with this great cacophony of noise. But who else is leading the procession? Nehemiah goes one way around the walls. Ezra goes the other way around the walls. So Ezra's there, the guy that brought the law and the recommitment to the covenant. So I think this is a praise and worship ceremony to celebrate all that God has done, all the way through Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Uh, and this idea that this is like the, the high point of the book, I think, comes through most strongly in verse 43. Because verse 43 says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. We have rejoiced there five times, I think, in one verse. But notice the end, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. In Ezra 3, if you remember this, when they rebuilt the temple, there was weeping and joy, and they couldn't distinguish whether it was weeping or joy. Some people were happy that the temple had been rebuilt. Others were sad that maybe it wasn't quite as good as it had been previously. But this is like just joy. Everyone is joyful. There's no more weeping. So you see, I think this is telling us that the temple, the walls, the law, the repopulation of the city, all these things, they end in worship. All that we do as Christians ends in worship. Our service, our giving, our sharing of our faith with others, our love for others, our service towards others, all these things are ultimately to the praise and the worship and the glory of God. These are our offerings of thanksgiving and praise back to God who's redeemed us and rescued us and loved us. And so by that sense, worship is the end, the purpose of everything. You know, the, Aaron said this before, but the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what is the chief end? And again, that means what is the chief purpose of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So worship is the end of everything. And I think just to finish, there are two ways we have to be careful here. Because this is where I think there are dangers in our worship. The first is we, we have to be careful we don't make the main uh, other things the main thing. So, for example, we might say, you know, and that could be even in our Christian walks. And we have to obviously be careful not to make worldly things the main thing. But I mean even Christian things the main thing. You know, we might say, we, we want the church to grow. We want a ministry we're involved in to thrive. It's so easy and subtle to want those things because really we want us to be doing well. We want to feel good about ourselves. Or we might say we want revival to break out. But really that's because you just want to be able to say, well, I was a part of a great mighty move of God. Or we want to grow in holiness in some area of our lives. You want to get our anger more under control, our, our lust more under control. Well, we really want that just because it makes us feel like we're a better person. All those reasons put us at the center, not God. We want the church, which is the body of Christ, to grow so that God is glorified. We want to see others come to faith so that uh, Christ is honored. We want to grow in holiness so we would better reflect him who has loved us and rescued us and washed us clean. The walls, the temple, the law are means to the ultimate end of worship. So ask yourselves, you know, why do you do the things you do? For what purpose do you do them? Is it to glorify God? Is it sometimes to satisfy yourself? You know, these questions, they make us uncomfortable. They make me uncomfortable. Uh, but doing so, I think, can be a helpful check on our motivations and our, heart, our hearts. The second danger, then, is that we make worship something at the exclusion of or disconnected to the rest of the Christian life. So we come to church, we sing songs, we make lots of noise, 
but we're not really seeking the kingdom of God Sunday afternoon to Saturday evening. So imagine if the Israelites had this huge celebration, right? But they had made no effort to rebuild the walls, no effort to rebuild the temple, no desire to know God or follow his law. Hardly anyone wanting to live there. It would be kind of praising God with their lips, but it would just be empty because there would be no reality connected to their praise, to their worship. So we can't sing of the greatness of God if our lives don't in some way reflect his goodness the rest of the week. Now, if the Holy Spirit's showing you something right now, you know, maybe a, something in, from this week or uh, an issue that you need to repent of and turn back to God over, then you must do that. God is merciful. We can always bring our sins to him, confess them, seek to turn away from them. He is just and merciful to forgive us. But our worship is the overflow of the rest of our lives. We can't sing songs and say we love God if we're not obeying him. So worship is the end of everything. All we do in service of God and one another is done to the praise and glory of God and Christ. That's why, isn't it, the book of Revelation finishes, right, with the people of God clothed in white before the throne of God, worshipping and praising him. And when we're with God in glory, we will be praising and worshipping forever. That is our purpose as Christians. That's our destiny. So, four lessons on worship then. Faithful worship is regular and habitual. Worship must be made holy. Worship is energized by looking to God. And worship is the end, the ultimate purpose of everything. Um, we're going to sing one.